The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. And I'm Mandy Nolan. And you're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. I'm George Katzi. I'm Mandy Nolan, and you're listening to The Daily Dose. We're going to be hearing the stories of people who inject drugs. I mean, these are the stories that you don't normally hear. Most of what we hear around drug use, and particularly people who inject drugs, comes from the media, and it's deeply etched with stereotypes, which creates an enormous stigma that impacts on people's lives and their access to employment, family and personal relationships. And their interaction with health services. Neither George nor I inject drugs, nor have we ever injected drugs. So what's our relationship with this topic? I mean, why are we making the daily dose? Well, I used to be a nurse and I saw the way that health staff shifted their perception of a patient once they realised they were a person who injected drugs. Do you think that you did that? Uh, Yeah, look, you know, I think I probably did because I guess that's how stigma and unconscious bias works. I mean, it's embedded in these beliefs and perceptions about who people are without even knowing actually their background or situation or or even their story. It's the story that's important, isn't it? It shifts people's views because a story can put you in relationship with one person's situation. It's a challenging topic because I guess there's just so much fear around drug use and even us talking about it scares some people because they see it as normalising or promoting drug use. We're not doing that. I mean, in this podcast, we give a voice to the lives and circumstances of people who inject drugs to look behind the stigma and hear people's stories with compassion and understanding. We all want better outcomes and fear and marginalisation hasn't actually stopped anyone using drugs. Maybe it's actually part of the problem. There's so much shame too around injecting drug use. A long-term partner, actually the father of my first two kids injected drugs and I really struggled with it. I felt like I was going to be judged too. So I hid it from my family and friends. Actually, I guess people did judge me and it it just made it so much harder because I felt like we were socially deviant and unacceptable. It it marginalised us a lot. And I think the way I felt and the shame, it it definitely impacted on the relationship. So, yeah, it it didn't help. So is that why you wanted to make this podcast? Yeah, I I think it is. Because looking back, you know, I realised I was just as guilty of playing into the same stereotypes and... I know so many people who use drugs and I knew their stories. Nearly everyone had experienced significant trauma that had never been dealt with. I feel like people who inject drugs just aren't offered the same protections from prejudice like so many other groups now have. It's like they sit outside the frame of political correctness and become one of the last groups that we're allowed to generalise about and be mean to. Using words like junkie 
I mean, it's one of those words that hurt people, I mean, even unintentionally, but you never get called out for using it. I remember in when I was working in the hospital and at a shift change, the nurse would hand over bed three, they've got a fractured leg, a junkie, so, so don't give them any pain relief. I mean, the truth is we didn't even realise we were setting them up for compromised care. On the first night at our Daily Dose home studio, George and I sat down to watch the ABC and then on came Media Watch with the lead story about Melbourne Herald's son saying no to the proposal to open a second safe injecting room in the city. Talk about synchronicity. To Melbourne and another ugly tabloid stoush of drug injecting rooms. Police union traders plea. Please don't make us junkie town. Flinders Street injecting room fury. Yes, there's nothing like demonising drug addicts to sell a newspaper. And on Wednesday last week, the Herald Sun was in rare form. This is a typical sensationalist media response to people who inject drugs. I mean, we couldn't believe the timing. It really reminds us how important these stories are and how harmful these stigmatised and sensational views on drug use can be for the whole community. Dr Carla Trelaw is Director of the Centre for Social Research in Health at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, and she couldn't agree more. You know, people who inject drugs are not blind or silly, right? They, they will see those kind of headlines and there'll be a range of reactions, including that internalising notion of, you know, this place really doesn't want me, I'm not worthy of care, um, I'm, you know, if I turn up at a service, that's how I'm going to be treated. And um, that's the, the bridge, I think, into health services, that um, the way someone might think about turning up to your service is informed by lots of different things and things that may have happened um, recently or, or more in the past. So a stigma-informed service is really important for people who inject drugs to realise that um, the service and the people within it may be wonderful, but they have to deal with the reality of stigma in the lives of people who inject drugs and and deal with it in a humane and informed way in offering care that um, makes the person turning up, um, doing that brave step of turning up when they're really fierce, could be really fearful that they're going to be treated really negatively. Uh, engaging with that person and say, thanks for coming today. You know, it's, we want to help you look after your health. What can we do for you today? It just shows how important it's to tell real stories that don't rely on stereotypes and prejudice. So we've had this week to record these conversations. We've been working with the NSP. You'll hear that a lot, Needle Syringe Programme. And we've been working to find a range of people who might be willing to speak to us and share their story. I mean, this is brave stuff. I mean, because sharing these kinds of stories comes with risks. In some instances, friends, family and colleagues don't even know about their drug use. I mean, they could lose their job, be marginalised in their communities, ostracised at school pickup. Yeah, absolutely. And be judged. So we won't tell you when um, we're changing the names along the way. And so that way people have some sense of safety. Can you imagine sharing your most socially complex story with the world on a podcast? So we're actually really grateful to these nine storytellers for having the guts to give this a go. 
This podcast is recorded in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales. So while a lot of references are Northern Rivers specific, others are from cities and towns around the country. So we've rented this warm and cosy old house in Lismore, which is a country town of about uh, 44,000 people and it's 730 kilometres north of Sydney. It's a very creative and progressive town. It's a university town. It's a mixture of counterculture, old farming families, First Nation families, university students, artists, trazy, trazies. It's like a that's like a crazy trade, isn't it? Uh, tradies and hoons. I mean, it's a big eclectic country town out here. They call it a city. The house we're in was built like in the 1920s. It's been raised twice because of the flooding and there's a mark on the back steps showing the height of the 2019 flood. Lismore's a town that can break its levy and when it does, it's inundated and the whole CBD and surrounding areas go under. This house is actually called Catherine after the mother of the person who owns it. She's only the third owner. I mean, there's a little story pinned up on the wall how during the Second World War, the owner built a bomb shelter in the back garden. I mean, they dug they dug a big hole in the ground, <laughs> um, but they didn't take into account the Lismore flooding. I um, mean, she had to fill it in so her young kids wouldn't wouldn't drown. I love all the stories that are here. And there's even like there's a fireplace burning and we're at the kitchen table recording these stories. It feels right, I reckon, George, that we're at the kitchen table because... These are real, you know, ordinary human stories. There's old comfy couches, there's cute little ornaments and, you know, nostalgic oldie-worldie paintings. And outside's really green and lush. You can probably even hear the birds. It's a regular home. It's so lovely to be in a house with its own story while we sit and listen to the stories of others. So we are waiting for our first storyteller, Megan. I mean, it's funny because we know she'll be, she'll be nervous, but, but we kind of are too. Like you, we are hearing these stories for the first time. Hi, Megan. I'm Mandy. Hey, Megan. I'm George. Come on through. Megan is this bright 26-year-old. She reminds me a lot of one of my daughters. She's funny and engaging and real. She's informed and articulate. Grew up as a carer for my parents. My mum has an acquired brain injury and my stepdad has um, post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, it was a pretty chaotic household. So I sort of grew up around mental health stuff and ended up developing some mental health issues pretty early on. Um, But I, you know, sought a lot of help for stuff and ended up becoming a mental health peer worker. So my background for the last several years has been in community services. Um, And I really, really enjoy that work, um, using my lived experience to sort of help make things better for other people in the long run. Um, But I also have a background randomly in vet nursing. Um, I was a vet nurse for a little while before my physical health, I have some physical health issues. So before they sort of came up, I worked in a vet clinic, which I absolutely loved. So yeah, really pro-animal therapy and all that sort of stuff. I'm 26 now and I actually hadn't tried many um, substances till a few years ago. I sort of, you know, drank a fair bit when I was younger, um, a teenager, and then, you know, had tried um, weed and had 
tried LSD and MD like once or twice in safe settings with friends. Um, and you know, that was all fine, but I ended up a few years ago, um, meeting someone who I was in a relationship with for a few years and I didn't find out till a little bit into the relationship. And, and I mean, like ironically at first, um, I had been working at Acon in the secondary NSP there. And, you know, so I was like really in, um, harm reduction sort of headspace and, you know, like they were using language like junkie and that sort of thing. And I was sort of like, you know, it's best not to use that language and trying to like sort of, you know, like mansplain things to them a little bit. Um, and then um, ironically later on, they told me that they were a heroin addict um, and a polydrug user and sort of and injected drugs as well. So Megan has mentioned the NSP. Remember, that's the needle syringe program. Look, we're going to be hearing a lot about the NSP in these podcasts So before we hear more of Megan's story, let's understand a little bit about the NSP and what they do. The NSP is part of a national health strategy that recognises that some people are unable to stop using drugs immediately and therefore focuses on reducing the harms associated with drug use whilst they still need to use. The NSP neither condones or condemns drug use. NSP workers Jeanette and Sashi tell us more about the program. We provide a range of services within the needle and syringe for equity in terms of confidentiality, people that want their anonymity. We have vending machines, we have access to free shoots, and then you have like a harm reduction officer that then conversations about safer drug use can take place. The distribution of needles and syringes is one part of what we do. Another really important part of what we do is provide uh, an access point for people who may not have access into the health service. Uh, It's a softer landing spot for people to come in, talk about what's going on for them honestly without us needing to collect any identifying information about them so that once the the trust and the relationship is built up, we can support them with whatever access to other health and community services that they need. So um, within the needle and syringe program, we provide access to new injecting equipment. We provide community disposal. So um, once the equipment has been used, they can bring it back to us. So we dispose um, of community sharps. So whether that be um, used for illegal drugs or um, someone who's used their needles for insulin, whatever it is, they can always bring it back to us for safe disposal. Um, We provide naloxone, which is the overdose reversal medication. So that is either a nasal spray or an injection for people who identify as as injecting drug users or drug users, but family and friends as well. So it's anyone who might either be at risk of overdosing themselves or witnessing an overdose for a, a loved one. So we give them the education and the information so that they can then take that home and reduce the harms associated with drug use probably injected like a bunch of things that most people probably wouldn't inject um, because we were quite sort of like adventurous with our testing of things. Um, yeah, it was... Did you get scared at times? That you think, <laughs> going to happen to me now? <laughs> very. I was very sort of like almost like an adrenaline junkie at the time. You know, it was like, yeah. oh, this is a new thing that I could try that's quite extreme. You know, like the first time I had DMT, um, I injected a really large amount of that and just like totally left my body. <laughs> like, yeah, that was so intense. Um, well, I saw, I saw a red... So like twisting um, mandala with 
like um, women in sort of like Indian sort of outfits and also elephants all twisting around. It's quite beautiful. But then I got this sort of daunting feeling. Um, and also when I looked at my partner's face, it was all like fragmented and that was quite scary. <laughs> Were you the one who was leading with those adventures um, or was he leading? It was almost like a bit of like a give and take dance. You know what I mean? Like I saw him using a lot of drugs. Um, he did kind of groom me onto a few of them to begin with. Like my mental health was a little bit rough when we met. And, you know, he, cause he, like I had always sought um, access to help from services and things like that and support, but he was sort of quite against the system and sort of told me, you know, not to seek help there and, um, you know, that he'd just look after me and, you know, started sort of giving me um, like benzodiazepines, like um, Xanax and that sort of thing. When I was anxious, you know, we'd go out and he'd give me some oxy and stuff like that. Um, Cause I've, I've had chronic pain since before I met him. So that was, and I had been using codeine over the counter. Um, and it was sort of just when that law came in that that wasn't a thing anymore that um, I sort of met him around then. So I was kind of in a space where I was sort of quite desperate for some sort of painkiller in yeah. general anyway. Um, yeah. And so like, I just started taking like larger amounts of oxy and, and, and snorting things and stuff like that. Like I started using drugs other ways before I started injecting. But I remember one time um, he like let me watch him inject, you know, so I could see the process. I was just curious. Like I've had family members and stuff in the past inject, um, you know, drugs and, and, and who are heroin addicts and stuff like that. So I was quite curious, you know, um, and I also was like quite head over heels with this person. So I, you know, wanted to, um, get to their level, you know what I mean? Like I wanted to sort of experience what they're experiencing. So yeah. So I, I don't even remember the first, I actually don't remember the first time I injected probably cause I was intoxicated afterwards. <laughs> um, drugs don't do great things for memory at times. Um, but yeah, I just like, you know, we started injecting things and, um, you know, like MDMA or one time we injected a bunch of LSD and vodka, which was really painful and silly. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It was so painful. Oh it was terrible. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> like doing R and D. Yeah. It's terrible. Oh, you're like, wow. Yeah. And ketamine and yeah, just like I was injected ice and ketamine and a bunch of things. <laughs> so you were still working through all this, is that? Um, to begin with, I was working, I was working as a mental health peer worker for an organization and for ACON and doing some volunteering and stuff. Um, but the relationship became like a little bit codependent in general anyway. And, and I think like probably simultaneously with the substance use, um, it did become harder to, to go out and work like my normal roles and stuff. So, um, but uh, you know, like at the same time, my physical health did decline. I developed chronic fatigue syndrome as well, which kind of sort of like put a bit of a damper on my ability to work. Um, but yeah, so I did kind of stop working a little bit in, but I stayed sort of active in the community, volunteering, um, you know, working in like other sorts of harm reduction um, programs, like youth sexual, um, youth sexual health promotion stuff. And, um, you know, stayed working in the mental health sector and, and um, consulting for health and that sort of thing. But when I was out in the public volunteering and, and working, I didn't tell people what was going on. Like I hit it. Was, I was, there, was there a reason why you didn't, even when you're working in the sector, is yeah. there a feeling that you, sh you shouldn't really be telling people is it unsafe? Is there still stigma in the I think sector? there really is still stigma. Like, yeah. that, like you know, it, it depends on where you, you are. Like, there are some organisations that are really great, you know. Um, they sort of say, like, as long as your substance use doesn't affect your work, like, as long as you're not, you know, like, work, working whilst intoxicated, like, that's okay. Um, but, yeah, I feel like a lot of places it would have just created, like, I was worried what people would think of me, I guess, and even socially. Like, it was sort of like, um, it was a very personal thing. Like, I'm sure that a lot of them might not have judged. But, um, and the other thing, was that um, my partner was like extremely 
paranoid about people finding out about, you know, because he was a social worker at the time and he didn't want his reputation to be sullied. So, um, you know, he was really adamant and, and paranoid about me telling anyone. And then, you know, at the start he said I couldn't even tell my um, like counsellors and psychologists about it because it was a small town and he was worried that word would get around and that he didn't trust that they would keep confidentiality. And yeah, so I was in a really tricky position where I was really like strongly, strongly encouraged not to tell anyone ever, like, you know, um, because they had experienced a lot of stigma in their time sort of thing. They'd been treated really badly over the many years because of their, like the yeah. substance use. So, yeah. So what happens to you when you are forced to keep a secret around, you know, behaviour? Well, I guess it makes the relationship incredibly um whether you say potent or it just kind of supercharges. Yeah, yeah, like very codependent, like very sort of like um, intense, I suppose. Like, you know, you become very reliant on each other for like support in those areas um, and for, you know, not not judging each other in those areas and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and it was, like, it really did affect the other relationships I had with my family and friends and my work. Like, I eventually did start telling one or two really trusted friends or, like, support workers about what was going on. Um, and, you know, they just sort of said that, like, they knew that I was a really honest person and that like, having to keep such big secrets and lie to people so much was really affecting my relationship with myself and, and my sort of integrity, like, because I wasn't living to my values. So that was really difficult for me, actually, Yeah. Yeah. So are you still actively injecting drugs now or using drugs? Um, No, I actually... I have been using drugs, but I haven't been injecting. So um, because of my mental health stuff that I've experienced, like I can be like, and especially in the past in that relationship, like I could be quite impulsive. So I actually um, did this protective thing. It sort of protected me, but sort of made me quite vulnerable. I didn't learn how to um, mix up and inject drugs myself. I actually only ever had the partner do that for me. Um, I did like inject myself once or twice but most of the time it was him um and I never learned to mix up because I just said I, I don't want to cross that line because you know if I can if I cross that line um I also didn't cross the line of knowing how to get them um we would get them off the internet and it was quite a long process and I just was like I don't want to learn that because I know that if I have access to substances um you know I might accidentally OD one day from being impulsive you know like so um yeah so when we split up I couldn't learn how like to do that. Um, but I also to protect myself, um, did get onto an opioid replacement therapy. So I actually have an injection of buvidol once a month now, um, which is the buprenorphine and naloxone. So it blocks those receptors in the brain. So it actually means that if I injected heroin right now, I wouldn't feel anything. I couldn't overdose. It wouldn't make me feel high. It wouldn't help my pain at all. Um, and it covers my pain, my pain management so that I don't feel a need to do that sort of stuff as much. Speaking with Megan, it's clear that the line between her relationship and her injecting drug use was pretty blurred. It's like she was addicted to him as she was to the substances. The intimacy was born out of hiding from judgment. Ironically, I guess it meant at times when Megan could have been reaching out, the fear of being judged and her partner's lived experience meant she kept it secret. So she goes to see a psychologist who she does open up to. But in their sessions, Megan tells us the psychologist was really judgmental. Uh, well, like they just, 
they said that they were just trying to give me space to like experience whatever comes up, but they, they would just like really withhold, um, like talking, like they would just go really silent for a really long time. Like, and they'd ask me really intense questions. And for a while I didn't mention the substances cause I thought I went to a few sessions and I thought that we were working like that. She assumed that I was still taking them and that we were working on the underlying issues around that stuff. Why, I, like why I felt the need to use substances to get through my days. Um, and then one day I mentioned something in casual, like in passing in something I was talking about, that I was still using and she stuffed me and was like what you're still using substances what are you like you, you know I thought you weren't using substances anymore um and her just her attitude changed and like the rest of that session she was just really quiet um really pushy like really pushing my challenge line like you know um not creating sort of like a not holding space for me and creating a safe space for me to experience things but really pushing um you know that that we couldn't do much work together whilst I was still using drugs it really felt like she just thought that um that it wasn't worth doing any work with me because I was sort of a hopeless case if I was going to keep using substances. Like it really just felt like, well, you know, if you're just going to use substances forever, then you're not going to achieve any of your goals and there's no point working on stuff. Like, and, you know, that came across in her language, her body language, um, you know, her attitude towards me. And yeah, and like, I mean, ideally, I would have loved to have had it not make a difference, you know, like for them to just be like, okay, cool. Like you're still using substances. If you want to talk about that in particular, we can, but otherwise we'll work on these other things. Um, you know, and just to to not be judgmental essentially you know like and because people who are vulnerable like you know youth or um, people using substances or people with mental health issues or disabilities um or in oppressed groups of society they they feel that stigma because they're so used to it so they can pick it so even if someone doesn't say outwardly that they um are judging someone you know I even called her out one time and said I feel like you're judging me and she said no I'm not judging you um but like and then we spent most of that session talking about our relationship together with each other like which was really intense um but yeah like I just felt like I could just tell you know that she was yeah. judging like you just can know can I just stop this George, isn't it a bit weird to have a session about a relationship with your psychologist? Like you've broken trust. I thought that the clinical relationship was built on non-judgment and like a sort of, I guess, a kind of detachment. Feels like the psychologist has made the session about her. Yeah, it is a bit weird. Did that conversation with her where you, you spent mm. the whole session talking about judgment <laughs> yeah. uh, and you felt judged in the judgment conversation? Yeah. Um, I, think that, I think that doctor needs to see someone. I think that doctor needs to see someone. But I don't know whether it's this one or that one. I know. It's a psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever. But, but in, the, in that conversation, because that, that's, that's the key, I think that um, probably health workers need to hear is that mm. when someone actually declares that this is what they're feeling, you really need to... You need to you need to find out. You need to talk yeah. to that, don't you? Yeah. So you feel like even it doubles down yeah. on that they're not listening to you. Is that yeah, what it felt like? Yeah, it really did, yeah. It just sort of felt like um, it, to her it was more important what I thought of her than, you know, what I was experiencing or going through at the time. Like, And I do understand that it's important to make sure that you have, um, you know, like that you're on the same the same sort of like side of things. You can see each other's perspectives um, when working with someone in a counseling therapy sort of session. Um, but yeah, like we just spent a really long time on it and it just, I felt like a little bit like she was being selfish. Like it was more about what she wanted to know or what she was feeling or going about through. her values. That's what yeah, it seems like. Yeah. It wasn't about, like, I mean, I guess that's that thing. Ideally you want your kind of health workers and your medical kind of people to not bring their values to work. 
Yeah. Sense, but sometimes you have to, but in that sense, it's not appropriate. Because you know how judgmental parents will withhold <laughs> love? She was withholding treatment. Yes. Yeah, exactly. She really was. Yeah. yeah and you're going, yeah. That would stop someone. Like, I'm. Yeah. Did, did that impact on you having confidence to find practitioners? Oh, yeah. It may not be like that. Yeah. Did, you, did you leave her after that? I did, actually. Yeah. Um, I think after that session I, I was crying when I left and had to call a friend to go get a hug and, and debrief, actually. Um, and, yeah, and then after that we decided not to work together, like, like shortly after that because um, I went a few more times and, like, it was just strained and it just, like, didn't feel like a safe space for either of us anymore. Like, it felt like, you know, our personalities started to clash really badly. Um, but, yeah, it's a really interesting point that bringing their values to work because, like, we can't help that we all have our values. Um, and in to health peer work there's a thing called holding multiple truths and that's understanding that their world like you know that each person's worldview is different and that someone can be experiencing something such as like psychosis and that a, someone who's working with them like a clinician or counsellor cannot be experiencing that psychosis but can understand that that's what that person is experiencing and not try to tell them that it's not real not try to tell them like because that's really um, that's not validating their experience so it's really invalidating when especially a clinician um does for like sort of bring their values to the forefront of the conversation because it's really about understanding like you know they they just the person I'm working with um, and supporting just said something that's a bit triggering for me because of my values you know but I'm just gonna put that aside because this I'm here for them right now like this is I'm supposed to be you know um, supporting them with their values like and and it's okay to have differences in opinions on things. So with that, did you or have you ever experienced the reverse of that? Um, yeah, I actually have. I ended up seeing um, eventually for a short time a drug and alcohol counsellor through a small organisation because um, that one was through health. But yeah, just through a small like um, non-government organisation. And they, I don't know if they had their own lived experience. They didn't actually say, so I'm not sure if they did or not. But they were just so non-judgmental. Like I... I, I and the reason I didn't talk to that counsellor for a while, the one who um, we didn't get along so well, the reason that I hadn't mentioned substances for a while because I did get a bit of that vibe early on that, like, she didn't really want to talk about that, you know, and I did feel a need to hide that from her because I felt a little bit of that judgment early on. But this other counsellor, um, he just, like, I just knew there was no judgment. I could talk about anything and it didn't um, shock him. It didn't worry him. He didn't bring his values to the table. Like, he was non-judgmental. He could definitely hold multiple truths and understand that we might come from different places sometimes, but that doesn't mean we can't work together because we have... It's about that shared goal. Like, the shared goal should be, um, you know, benefit for the person who is accessing that service. Um, and that should be, you know, two people working together as part of a team, not people, you know, clashing or trying to gain power over the other one in conversation. Stigma in health organisations is a pervasive one. I mean, I used to be a nurse and on reflection, I, I didn't even recognise it was happening. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we didn't even know what stigma is. I mean, I certainly didn't get any training in it. I mean, in episode two, we talk to an expert on stigma who will help frame it for us. But right now, Sashi from the NSB is going to talk about the impacts of discrimination and, you know, how common it is. 80% of people who inject drugs have experienced some form of discrimination within the health service. Um, that's 80% yeah. of people. It's and, a huge and, number. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why this has become one of the focuses. So why is this important? Because this experience makes it harder for people to access our service. And if people can't access our service, 
or, uh, or that becomes a barrier to accessing our service, it means that they can't access other health services. So even if they may be ready to start exploring options of minimising or managing their drug use or ceasing their drug use, the fact that there is a barrier to accessing health services means that they may delay that. I've always been quite experienced at navigating like health systems and accessing yeah. services and that sort of thing from an early age. So yeah, it was quite easy for me compared to some people. Um, yeah, as yeah, and I, I just I know I know it is really difficult for a lot of people, and it does really, you know, they people really do feel that judgment and that pressure. I, I really like that you pointed out, um, you know, sort of like the 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 desired outcome of of the support that someone's receiving um, for a lot of services, it desired outcome is abstinence. You know what I mean? Like it sort of pushes for that. And that might not be what everyone wants. Like I, I have a mental health nurse that I see who has happens to have a background um, in drug and alcohol like work and was the manager of like a local health drug and alcohol service um, for a while. And, you know, so nothing shocks him, which is great, um, you know, and like even at the start when I was being all dramatic about all the extreme things I'd done in <laughs> substance use, he's like, man, I've worked in England with, you know, long, long-term long junkies and that's, that's nothing. Yeah, exactly. He literally said that is nothing compared to other stuff like, you know, you know, whatever. Um, you know, and, and he's pointed out to me actually since I've left that relationship um, when I have naturally because of the stigma and because of the societies and, and structures and services sort of goal of, of abstinence, I've ended up being stressed about, oh, I've had a craving or, oh, you know, this has happened and, and he, he just reminds me abstinence was never your goal you know your goal was never to stop using substances it was to use it um, in ways that's beneficial and safe for you um, in a sort of harm reduction framework that you know you're not being impulsive so you don't have that sort of like guilt and shame afterwards you're just mindfully making decisions about substance use just like someone would mindfully make like there's a difference between mindfully making a decision to have to get drunk on a weekend if you're with, at a party um, versus you know like I'm feeling really not okay I'm gonna go and have, get really really drunk you know um, and it's about sort of like where you're coming from when using substances rather than, you know, there's a hard rule. If you have substances, you know, you're not going to reach your goals. And if you don't have substances, well, you'll be fine. That's something which I've noticed is that if I feel like society wants people, particularly injecting drug users, mm. people who choose to inject drugs and substance users, they want to, you need to be punished by poor life outcomes. Yeah. So if you're doing well, that is not a narrative that fits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I was quite a high functioning substance user. Like I was still working and still participating in the community. Um, and that's why it was easy for me not to tell people about it. But then when I did start telling people, they were really shocked. You know, they were sort of like, how is that possible that you were you're using substances? You're not one of those people. Is that that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing? People kind of, yeah. kind of say, yeah, definitely. This kind yeah, of- yeah, it's definitely otherizing. Like it's a massive thing. One of the stereotypes around people who inject drugs, which causes a lot of fear and distrust in the community, is criminality. You know, that people who inject drugs steal and manipulate the system in order to facilitate their addiction. Look, this is certainly true for some drug users, but, but not for all of them. There are other injecting drug users who work and they occupy respected roles in the community. So it's important not to think of people who inject drugs as one homogenous group. It's this view of people who use drugs as a shameful thing that feeds a low self-worth, which in turn, ironically, fuels addiction. Shame and guilt for me presents in um, like low negative self-talk, like low self-worth and, and, and struggling with my self-image and my identity, um, feeling like like the weight of the world on my shoulders, like everything's my fault, like feeling like because I've done one particular thing or thought something like that, that makes me 
wrong or bad, like, or other, like, and that, yeah, and it just sort of presents it, like, you know, makes relationships more turbulent because if someone tries to pay me a compliment, like, I it just would send me into a spiral or, you know, like I would do something. Um, and, and something I did learn that helped with that was um, about needs-based therapy from the Centre for Nonviolent Communication that talks about everyone is always trying to meet their needs constantly. It is like an animal instinct and no one is never not doing that. Even if someone's fully depressed and hasn't gone out of bed in in and in 10 years, like they are still trying to meet their needs. They're trying to meet their needs for safety, for rest, like whatever it is. Um, and so once I sort of learned that, it did eventually help me to see that like, you know, if I was really struggling and I, you know, my mental health was really bad and I really was like craving substances and I impulsively used some substances, you know, the way I would deal with that after um, would be just to remind myself that like, look, I did the best I could at the time, you know, like, and and that's all we can do. Like, and, and all I can do now is try and do better next time and 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 trying to sort of replace that negative self-talk with more positive stuff. Um, and also like, yeah, just being gentle with yourself and just learning to do that sort of self-love and, and, and build building that relationship with yourself where you can hold space for yourself and know that, you know, you can make mistakes because you're human. I suppose I want to tap into the cliche, if you mm. like. And maybe I feel it's a cliche, that sense of um, people who take drugs are troubled, right? And yep. so that's, they, they turn to drugs to to deal with that. Yeah. Because that dis- you mentioned dissonance. Yeah. That where, you know... Um, your view of yourself doesn't match actually what how, how you be in the world and yep. how things so you get this uncomfortableness or who you think you should be is yeah. probably how you think you should be or for a lot of people how what other people definitely. say you should yep, be. Definitely. And and you live somewhere in there. Do you is is that is that why you turn to drugs? I mean, is that, is that is that part of it? I mean, is that actually part of it? Because you've um, probably the other side. That was side really cute yeah. there, George, because you looked a little bit like this kind of sweet minister. Yeah. Is that why you turn to drugs? <laughs> <laughs> Hands up in the air, honestly. I don't say that. I don't want to say It's kind of funny, isn't it, because when you have a conversation, and it's yeah. actually really good to have because it's hard to have the conversation because there's not a lot of language around it. In trying to find language oh, that yeah. isn't inherently bigoted. Stigmatising. Stigmatised. Yeah. And yeah. it's not much. No, there isn't. I know, there I know. Isn't. That's why I'm kind of, because it is all cliche. Yeah. I know, that's why it I is. It's all Free cliches. Journeys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I suppose I use the cliche because there's that yeah. sense of, oh, it's that, that's that. If we deal with the troubles, that the drugs yeah. will go away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how do, how do you feel about all that? that um, space? Like, I really think that everyone is different, but I mean, like, I think that just like statistically the rates of like, say, background with trauma um, and, and mental health sort of issues that do like are higher in people in the communities of people who do choose to use substances, um, just like it is in, you know, like queer communities or um, indigenous communities or people with disabilities, like that sort of thing. Um, you know, so I think that like, you know, things like especially childhood trauma can sort of definitely make someone more likely to end up turn, turning to drugs. <laughs> turning. It's like a, it's, I love the Here I am. <laughs> it's like you come home and you go, I feel terrible. I'm a, oh, oh. Turning, yeah. <laughs> I think I might turn to drugs. Is that drugs in the cupboard? <laughs> Tell you what, I often I come so, home do, do you think I it's would um, like to turn to drugs a lot the, more than I do. Yeah, my, most of our society turns to some form of, of yeah, drugs, exactly. you know, alcohol or That's, this or cigarettes or whatever it is yeah. that they turn to. Most of us turn to something. That's a really good point. Um, or they turn to um, extreme God, ex- God or extreme, extreme God. abstinence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. And then there's that loud and proud about that. And yeah. You, you know those people and you just go, wow, what's your... What, 
What it's you, your problem. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, so, what, so loud and what's yeah, your problem? definitely. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I learned when I was young is everyone's addicted to something that takes the pain away. Um, whether you're like, I sort of identify as a bit of a sex and love addict. Like I love the feeling of meeting someone new and having that spark, that new relationship energy. Um, you know, like I noticed that sort of thing in myself, but yeah, like whether it's coffee or work for a while when I wasn't using substances before I met this person, um, I was a workaholic. I would like burn myself out. I'd be working two or three jobs, volunteering two or three positions, yeah. having my own projects like and you know it, I was just all consumed with it like and yeah so I think that like people who judge people for for using choosing to use substances it's sort of like I don't think they do a lot of self-reflection it shows a level of immaturity and naivety to think that someone's not as strong as you because they choose to use drugs and you choose to use that and especially they choose to use drugs that are illegal and you choose to use drugs that are that are legal. The personal is political because it is, you know, because, you know, political things are driven by a community of people, like by the people. And that if, you know, people can, can just change just small things within themselves, like, like, like how they judge others. And just to be aware of the fact that, you know, like we do judge others and to sort of do things to mitigate that within ourselves and to address that, um, you know, I think change would be a lot faster and swifter to come. Yeah. Thank Beautiful. You. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. That's okay. Thank Thanks you so much for having me. No worries. Let's hear from Carla Trelaw and her language plays a role in creating and maintaining stigma. Language is so important, right? It's, it's often, besides the nonverbal cues, of course, it's often the first ways in which people see themselves reflected in others. Um, the types of language that people use in their or services might use in their public statements about what they do and who they are. We welcome everyone. Help for all. Um, please come in and see us. We're here to help. Those kinds of very positive, welcoming messages um, are very important, as well as then the kinds of language that, that tends to stick to drug use and people who use drugs. So there's some fantastic resources out there that really help people uh, identify the types of language that is particularly distancing, alienating, excluding, and to develop alternatives for that. Um, and you know, this is people-centered language, um, removing uh, a stereotypical language or language that is imprecise um, and getting to really understand the person, the client in front of you, their story, the impact of the various things on their lives, on their health, and um, and being careful to uh, avoid any of that language that could mean that someone's less interested in coming back or sticking with the program because they don't feel welcome or feel judged. Changing your language takes effort, but it's worth it. When you change the way you speak about someone or how you might frame their drug use, you start to move stigma. Changing language helps move long-held beliefs or prejudices. Sometimes you don't even know you have them. They're just so deeply embedded in what we're saying. So here are some examples of how you might change. When you're looking at stigma and how people are perceived, you know, in in the area of, of um, when people use drugs, one of the key places to go and have a look at where a lot of our bias and our, our prejudice may live, it's very often, it's it's embedded in the language and the words that we use. And very often we don't think about how our word choice might be hurting or impacting on someone else and how that might be reinforcing the way that 
um, people feel and the ongoing stigma. So the whole idea is, you know, through this podcast, we really hope um, that we've helped move that forward a little bit and that, you know, you can really have a go at using what's called person-centred language that focuses on the person and not the substance. And it really, it, it doesn't, it's, it's language that um, doesn't deny a person their, their agency or dignity. Do you have any examples of that? Yeah. So instead, for instance, of like sometimes you might say, oh, you might refer to abuse, like as far as drug abuse or someone's got problem use or or um, misuse, you can just say some substance use or someone has non-prescribed use. Um, another area that's really problematic is how people are described. So when people say a drug user or abuser, you might use a person who uses or injects drugs. And, for instance, when you're, you're talking about a person, rather than saying, and these are the ones where you probably hear it the most, where you go, oh, they're an addict, or, you know, they're a junkie or a druggie or an alcoholic, that's the kind of language which defines someone entirely through um, their behaviour or one, one, one part of their life. So that's a key place to move your language. So you say person with a dependence on and the extension of that is someone might, you might say they're suffering from addiction or they, they have a drug habit. So another way of saying it that is a person experiencing drug dependence. And also when you're talking about when people who, who aren't using anymore, you might say that they're clean or they're sober or they're drug free. And even though that seems like you think, oh, well, that seems okay, but you're still doing the same thing where you're, where you're taking agency. So you might refer back um, and, and say that it's a person who has stopped using drugs. Often people uh, stop using drugs and the, the language sort of, seems to stay with them for the rest of their lives, like if they're an ex-addict, a former addict, um, used to be a junkie or whatever. So reverse that and go something like a person with lived experience of drug dependence. And I think all this terminology goes back to that um, that original saying that we, we use at the head of all the podcasts, it's what I do, it's not who I am. Yeah, change your language. It'll help change how we think. Today you heard Megan's story. Join us next episode when we hear from Marco, a young man who's trying to rebuild his life and find a way to manage his addiction and his mental health. Needle and Syringe Programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website, www.bluenotknot.org.au.